morning. Hope you're doing well. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 16 and 17. You can turn those lights on a little brighter. Hit them all the way up, up both sides. There you go. There we go. Boom. Now you can see. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can open to Acts chapter 16 and verse 17. We're, we're going to finish 16 where it was, uh, Paul was in Philippi last week. Um, he had the, uh, the three gospel conversations. Surely he had more, but Luke recorded those for us. And now he's going to continue his church planning endeavors and go in, into Thessalonica. Now, he's not going to be there very long. Uh, he's not able to stay there for very much time, but that's where he's going next is Thessalonica. So uh, we're going to look at that. Um, <clears throat> the end of chapter 16 and his leaving <clears throat> of Philippi and is entering into Thessalonica, and then we're, that's all we're going to do today. And listen, I want, you to, uh, I want you to understand, like, it's okay for whenever we look at, at, at Scripture and we look at, at things, for it to be something that's very familiar, the topic, that's okay. Because uh, there's many things that we've heard that we haven't necessarily uh, heard enough. That we, even though we've heard it, we need to hear it again. We need to be reminded of things. And so uh, I'm hoping that as we're looking at just four particular things today, even though these things might be familiar thoughts, that the, the little bit of a different slant that I'm going to try to take as we look at them would be helpful for you. And you would want to, uh, you'd want to see these four things happen in your life. So uh, I'm going to read the text, um, chapter 16, 35, down to 17, 9. That's what we're going to be. So we're going to hear Paul, how, how Paul leaves Philippi and then his entrance into Thessalonica and his ministry in Thessalonica. Uh, and that's all we're going to look at. But um, we will look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as well. So if you have a, uh, uh, a different finger that you want to stick over there, it, and we'll come to that eventually. But so First, uh, for Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 9 just gives us kind of the brief history of how Paul does work in Thessalonica. But in 1 Thessalonians, specifically 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to see um, from Paul's perspective what the ministry was like there. So uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into starting at 1635. Lord, thanks for your love that you have for us. Thanks for Jesus. Thanks for sending Christ to us to save us. We are amazingly grateful that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, inspire men to write down the events that happened, write down uh, theology, write down for us, uh, so we can understand who you are, we can know who you are. The Bible is a book about how to know you. It's how you have saved us. It's a book about um, Christ and his coming. And God, we, uh, we love you and we adore you and we pray that our hearts would be open to your word this morning, and our, our hearts would be set aflame for your word as we leave today. Be with us now as we look into your word. Use, God, your word coupled with the Holy Spirit in us to change us, to change our affections for you, to convict us, to uh, give us uh, compassion where we need it, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember, Paul had gospel conversations with uh, from what <clears throat> Luke recorded, three different people from Lydia to the slave girl to the Philippian jailer. Uh, and then we saw at the very end that there was an uh, earthquake and Paul uh, preached the gospel to the Philippian jailer. And as we, we finished up last week, they were baptized. The Philippian jailer had, had 
washed some of their wounds. In verse 34, he set them into his house and he set food before them. He rejoiced along with them, the entire household, that they, they had believed in God. Verse 35 is where we are. So after all that had happened, the next day. But when it was the next day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have, have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Now, that, that doesn't work for Paul. Um, if you remember, he got beat up pretty bad for preaching the gospel. And as a Roman citizen, he was not supposed to be mistreated that way. And so Paul is going to exercise some of his Roman citizenship muscle here and help them understand that what you did was absolutely wrong. And they're going to get a little nervous. So um, verse 37, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and now they're trying to throw us out secretly like so like it didn't happen no let them come themselves and take us out the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens because you didn't do that to Roman citizens so they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city so when they were out of the prison This is just Pastor Paul. It's not like, okay, fine, you apologize, we're going to leave. What does he do? He goes back to the the church, the the church that he's planted, and wants to encourage them and love them before he leaves. So verse 40, and they sent them out of the prison, and then they visited Lydia, one of the very first converts of the Philippian church. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them all, and then they departed. And then they're going to... Go some around 50, commentators are all over the place here, 50 to 100 miles. I kept seeing 100, then I kept seeing 50, and I was like, well, it's between there. It's between 50 and 100. Google said 50, but commentators, get, some commentators, Stott said 100. Anyway, now they had passed through Epiphilus and Ap- Apollo. Apollonia, and they didn't stop there for some reason. Maybe they stopped there for a night's lodging, but th- there wasn't much ministry there. None that's recorded to us, and they came to Thessalonica. Uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. Remember, I've pointed this over and over. He goes straight to the synagogue, those that know the Scriptures, preaches the gospel to them from the Scriptures, because those are usually what would be the low-hanging fruit, the people that understand uh, the, the entire story of the Bible, who Christ is, preaches the gospel, tries to get converts, and then takes those and starts trying to plant the church in each city. So here in Thessalonica, no different. He went in, <clears throat> as was his custom, and he... Uh, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned. So that means he's at least there for about under a month. And that's all he's going to be able to be there. Um, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the, great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. That's where Paul was, seeking to bring them out uh, to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason to some of the brothers, that's where they were, and uh, some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the word upside down have also come here, and Jason have received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that... There is another king, Jesus. Yes, there is. Um, (laughs) And the people and the city authorities were disturbed, and they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So that's the end of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. And then he leaves. And um, Stott says that they, they weren't allowed to come back because Paul heard that if he were to come back, they would go back to this particular house, and they would uh, arrest those people and and hurt them. And so Paul uh, was preempted. 
imminently from being able to go back to Thessalonica. So he didn't get to go there very long, though he longed to be there. And he was only there a short time. What we know is probably about a month. We're going to see how he, how he ministered to them in 1 Thessalonians 2. But he was likely there uh, for about that length of time. One of the verses I want to key in on as we look at this is verse 6. Now, they mean it in a negative sense. They mean it in a negative sense. But nonetheless, I want to point it out. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city's authority shouting, These men who have turned their world upside down have come here also. So they're labeled as people who have turned the world upside down. And what, the way that they did that is through their love. So today what we're looking at is, um, you can go down one slide, is love that will turn the world upside down. So Paul and Silas uh, had gone into, at least we know of Philippi, and now into Thessalonica. And as they're going and spreading the gospel, this love of Christ that was in them was so strong that after people, especially their enemies, noticed what they had done, they they were willing to say, the love that these people have, or the... The, the work that these people are doing is literally turning the world upside down. And I think that as we look at this, it would be great for the city of Rock Hill to look at Remedy Church and say, the love that those people have and the message that they have and the way that they conduct themselves is literally turning the world upside down. That's what we want to be said of us. Now, it's said of a negative sense here. They're, they're trying to make it sound bad. But yet, it's true it is true what's happening. They are turning the world upside down. We're able to look back in 2,000 years of history and see that that's actually true. But not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. So we're going to get in just a, uh, a little bit here of Acts 17, 1-9. This kind of brief summary or overview of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. And then we'll look at 1 Thessalonians 2 and see a little bit more about how this, he specifically ministered to them. But Thessalonica itself was a town of about... Uh, 200,000 people. It was the capital of the region of Macedonia. Put up the map for me so you can, y'all, if you weren't here, you can see. Uh, so they started in Antioch. They went up here to this region of Macedonia. Uh, Thessalonica is way over there. And it's kind of the capital city of that region, Macedonia. And so uh, it's a bigger city in there. It's a trade city. There's a lot of commerce going on. Uh, and so it's a, it's a great place, kind of a hub, a great hub for the gospel to be spread. And so whenever he was there, uh, Paul wasn't there very long, but the ministry that he had turned into a, a good place for the gospel to be able to spread throughout the region of Macedonia. And so he was there, as I said, for just three Sabbaths. He would go and reason with them until he was eventually kicked out. But one thing that we can see in these verses is that Paul had four specific things that he loved. And those four specific things that he loved, as the Thessalonians that were opposing him say, was turning the world upside down. So as we see that, um, I want us to adopt, seek, go after with everything in us those particular four things that are our own life. Those particular four things that are our own. So four loves needed to turn the world upside down. Now, certainly there's more. You can, you can have tons more. But in this text, I want you to see these particular four. Number one is a love for God's word. A love for God's word. Whenever you go into verse 2, it said Paul went in as was the custom on three-day Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This reason is a dialogue. This is a conversation. This isn't a monologue. This isn't a sermon. This is Paul reasoning with them, having a dialogue with them, specifically about the Scriptures. Paul had a deep love for God's Word, so much so that it dominated the way he had conversation. Not to dominate the way he preached. Of course, that would make sense. It dominated the way he had conversation. 
That's different. So when I say preach, you think, okay, the elders do that. When I say conversation, you realize, oh, we all do that. We all do that. And of course, God's word dominates the way we preach. But here I'm trying to help us see God's word should dominate the way we have conversation. So in everyday life, the Bible should dominate the way you have conversation with people. I want you to notice that whenever he went, it says, and Paul went in for three Sabbaths, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then he says, this Christ, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And so in his conversations that he was having with them, it was about the Bible. It was about the Bible. Um, so let, let, me, uh, let me help you see just how influenced you are and how you can uh, absorb things and how after you can absorb them, you can give them out at any moment's notice. You ready? We are farmers. You see, you got it, right? Uh, Arby's, we have... You got it, right? You understand what I'm saying? Like a good neighbor. All right, so here's my point. I, there's, I, got, I have more. The best part of waking up... But that's not really true, right? We know that's not really true because, um, you know, whatever. If you drink Folgers, you know, there's lots better. There's really lots better. My whole point is this. Like, we, we are immersed in our culture, and as being part of the culture, we've absorbed it, and we're able to just spit it out at any moment's notice if, if we're prompted with the right prompting. Same thing. Exact same thing. Except don't be... I'm not saying knowing those things is bad. I know those things too, right? But we should also be absorbing the word of God. So when prompted, we're able to have those things come out of us. We're able to have conversation with people. Not, not preaching. Conversation that's just dominated by the word of God. Whenever we're talking, we say, you know what that reminds me of? Zacchaeus. Or you know what that reminds me of? Zechariah. You know what that reminds me of? Genesis. Or you know what that reminds me of? Revelation. You know what that like we just It reminds us of things whenever we're talking about anything, about how it relates to something in the scriptures. Spurgeon says it this way. Oh, that you and I might get the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the, of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we have taken our in, into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let thy eye glance over the words or to recollect a poetical expression or their historical facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk and scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scriptural models and what is better still your spirit is flavored with the word of the lord i would quote john bunyan as an instance of what i mean read anything of his and you'll see this almost like reading the bible itself he had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture and though his writings are charmfully full of poetry he cannot yet give into his pilgrim's progress that sweetest of all prose poems without continually making us feel and say why this man is a living bible stick him anywhere and his blood his blood is biblin the very essence of the bible flows from him he cannot speak without quoting a text for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you. So this is what we're striving for. And this is what was going on with Paul. The, the love that overcomes or the love that turns the world upside down starts with a love for the Bible. So that whenever you speak in all conversation, you're just overflowing with the Bible. I'm, I'm hoping that this isn't just a, uh, a point one that makes you say, oh, I should start reading the Bible then but that you have a deep desire to be so 
in the Word of God that it'll start characterizing the way you talk with anybody. That you talk about the Bible, that you use the Bible continually in all your conversations. So the first thing, because I do believe that we want to be used by Remedy, as Remedy Church to turn the world upside down. I think we really do love Christ that much, and we really want to see Jesus do something crazy in our city. Number one. Number two, Paul had a love for the gospel itself. He had a love for the gospel itself. When he went in there and reasoned with the scriptures, you can see at the end of three, this is a very simplistic gospel statement, but it is a gospel statement nonetheless. Nonetheless. End of three. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He'll tell us another time in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is that Christ died according to the scripture. He was raised and he was, he was buried and that he was raised according to the scriptures. So this is just a summation statement of the gospel itself. Where it says, this Christ, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Paul had an indomitable love for the gospel. His message was always straightforward. That you should, tr- salvation comes... Uh, by grace through faith. You can see it even in Ephesians where he says, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. His message was continually the same, that you need to trust in Christ completely for the forgiveness of your sins. And so if you aren't a believer today, this is the message for you right now. Trust in Christ. Believe in what Christ has done for you in order for you to, to be saved. If you are a believer, I just want to point this out, that you have the same message. If you're already in Christ, remember that the gospel is not just something for the unsaved, but it's something for you as well. You continually dwell at the foot of the cross, just like an unbeliever comes to the foot of the cross to be saved. We dwell and stay at the foot of the cross forever. We never leave it, reminding ourselves of the good news of what it's done. That we don't turn to our own self-reliance in order to have a right relationship with God. Instead, We need to have a love of the gospel just like Paul and stay there. Paul's message was clear. I mean, he he loved the gospel so much because his life was so transformed from before. Remember in Acts 9, the great conversion that he had? Remember in Acts 7 where he was killing Christians? And then after that, he was converted on the road to Damascus. That's why he says uh, to Timothy, This saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost... He really believed that. That's why he loved the gospel so much. He truly believed that he was one of the most chief of sinners in the world. And that if God would save him, that God would save anyone. And it's the same for us. It's the exact same for us. Whenever you're in seminary, they tell you, uh, don't make yourself the hero of your illustrations. If you make, when you're preaching. If you make yourself the hero of the illustrations, then you, you seem arrogant. And um, you should make you know, yourself the, the one who's the kind of the one that always messes up, right? <laughs> You're the one that, but Jesus is the hero of your illustrations. So uh, I'm breaking a rule, and I'm not trying to make myself the hero. I'm just trying to say um, there's, there's times where, there's times where uh, I just, I cannot believe that Christ has saved me. There's times where I will, and, and talking about Jesus or just reading the scriptures to people, I'll just start crying because of what Christ has done for us. Because of what Christ has done for me. Now, um, the whole point of saying that is this. Do you also love the gospel like this? 
Do you also think of yourself as the chief of sinners? Do you also, at some points in your life, whenever you're just reading, for me it's Luke 15, when I see the Father sit in the Scriptures, sitting there, waiting for the Son to come home, is today the day, is today the day. And then he sees him and he takes off to him and sprints to him and starts hugging him and saying, my Son has come home, throw a party. Whenever you think on the fact that who you were as a sinner, lost and now found, does it hit you in a way that sometimes brings you to tears of joy? Do you have a deep love for the gospel? Not in general, but for what it's done for you. That's the kind of love that turns the world upside down. The first one is a love for the scriptures. The second one is a love for the gospel and what he's done for you. The third one is just a love for God's mission. And that's the entire text. That's this entire text we're looking at in chapter 17. Remember what had just happened in Philippi. For the, how, how many times now? Third or fourth time? Second or third time? Paul has been beaten and persecuted for the faith. This time, one time he was stoned almost to death, to the point to where they thought was death. Here, he had been thrown in jail and beaten with rods. They inflicted so many blows upon them. They threw him into the inner stocks and they fastened their feet in the stocks. And he's laying at, in a urine-soaked, feces-soaked prison, singing hymns. Now, when it's time to move to the next city, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? The next city needs to be like the beach. <laughs> it needs to be the ra- relaxing time. It, hard time, hard city, hard city. We'll take a break there, get our minds straight, and then we'll go back to the next hard city. That's not what he does. He goes to straight on mission. He doesn't go and relax in Thessalonica. Instead, next city, hitting it hard. What does he do? Go into the synagogue, preach for three Sabbaths, be asked to leave again. For Paul, there was a deep love for God's mission. Beaten in Philippi, beaten before, what do they do? They keep going. The moment that Paul and Silas arrive in Thessalonica, it's clear that they're still on mission. He had a deep love for for the mission of God. Where we would want to lay low, probably the next time, that's not what he does. And that's why, because he had such a deep love for the mission of God, that they say things like, these men are turning the world upside down. Because he had a love for the mission of God, to seek and save the lost. Do we have that same kind of love for the mission of God? To where... We're not quitting. We're not going to take a break for a while. We're going to keep going, no matter what. If, if you're looking at Paul's view of mission, I think it can only be categorized as intense. Just intense. Seriously. Um, this past week, I was at Target. And whenever I was there, I can't name names about what happened. But I was at Target, except this person's last name might rhyme with locker. So whenever I was there... Um, <laughs> And uh, whenever I was there, I was, I was walking in. And if you walk into Target, you can walk by the bathrooms over here. And you know you got your, your sales thing stuff here. Like, they're all in clearance. And so uh, whenever I walked by, I, I saw that there was a shopping cart there. And I thought, this would be pretty funny. So I, I grabbed the shopping cart, and I just go down the, the, the aisle towards the men's shoes. And so I'm all the way down at the end. But the clearance rack was so enthralling that the person here did not notice that the uh, shopping cart got taken. And so uh, I stood down at the shoes for a long while with the cart and just waiting. Like uh, one day this year, 
this person, male or female, is going to turn around and notice this. And so it's a while. And so I, I, finally, this person turns around and starts looking. And so I'm walking back with the cart and looking around and then engaging with the target worker. I had a cart here and I don't know where it is. And then what, what happened when you realize your shopping cart's gone, not with just with the stuff you, that, that on clearance that you really want to get that no one else can get now, but that your purse might, I mean, your, 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 your wallet holding substance of, of money, male or female, we don't know who that is, might not be in your possession anymore. Um, panic is the only description that can be given of the person's face. It's I have a, 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 an overcoming sense in, that I must find this thing, and I'm panicked. I say that to say this, right? The serious note is, that was Paul's bend towards mission. There's people that need to be found. And he had an intensity about him that he was going to do it no matter what. And that same way, the seriousness or sober-mindedness of finding something that's lost should be turned towards people. Should be turned towards people because they are going to go to hell forever without hearing the gospel. We need to have an intensity about us. An intensity about us. About seeking and saving the lost. Loving people, no matter who they are, almost to a panic that they don't know Christ. Not in a panic that's like, God's not sovereign, he's not going to do his will. But a seriousness, a sober-mindedness about us. An intensity about us that we need to find what's lost and help them understand who Christ is. That's how we turn the world upside down. We have a love for the mission of God. We have a love for the mission of God. Thus far, we've seen, we've seen three things. Paul had a love for the word. Paul had a love for the gospel, and Paul had a love for mission. The last thing I want you to see is that Paul had a love for people, specifically people. You're going to see this not in Acts 17 because it's just a kind of a quick narrative of what happened from Luke's perspective, but you're going to see it in 1 Thessalonians 2. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul outlines uh, his time there. This is what he says. Now remember, we know that he's only there a month. We know that he just got beaten in Philippi and he enters in, goes to the, goes to the uh, synagogue and starts ministering to them. We know that he's just there a short time. When you hear this, you hear this, you think Paul must have been there years. He was there for about maybe 20 something days. Listen to how he describes in just three to four weeks the ministry there. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much mercy and conflict. In other words, you know that we just got beat up. And we were a little bit hesitant to go to the next city because it might happen again. But you know what, Thessalonica? We came to you anyway. The same way that we came to Philippi. Ready to share the gospel. Verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error and purity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God, because God has approved us, because God has entrusted us with the gospel, we're now entrusted to go speak that gospel to other people is what he says. So we speak not to please man, but to please God. We came to test our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. We didn't come to seek glory from people. We came to seek, give glory to God. Whether you from others, 
though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Here it is. Three weeks, maybe four, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own, that's selves, that's souls, that's psuche, that's, that's like the very essence of our entire soul of who we are. That's who we shared with you. We're not only ready to share with you the gospel, which is the easy thing compared to taking your heart open and saying, this is who I am. This is everything about who I am. Not, I mean, not only come to you like mothers that are gentle. If you remember our brother, uh, our, our, if you remember brothers, our, law, our, our ta- uh, labor and toil, we work night and day not to be a burden with you while you proclaim the gospel of God. So they, they didn't make any money there. They were tent workers the entire time they were there so that they could say just as freely as we're offering you this message, just as freely as we're not trying to receive anything, that's the gospel's free to you as well. You're witnesses of how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was to you. And he came to you like a father in verse 11. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. There's just an obvious sense that Paul had a deep love for these people as he had for almost all the churches he planted. And this is just a short little time. When that kind of love is demonstrated to people, when they see and receive the love of a nursing mother, uh, any, any, if you watch any mom with their child, they literally have to do everything for them. They're so tender-hearted and nurturing and caring. But also like a dad, to be an encourager. And of course they can do both. But like a dad that encourages and helps them walk in holy and righteous living. This is a deep love that Paul had for the people in Thessalonica. And whenever we love the city of Rock Hill that way, that turns the world upside down. That turns the world upside down. I want to read you a story that's, it's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. In 1970, there was a man named Norman Bulag who was awarded the Nobel Nobel Peace Prize for saving around 2 billion people from starving. With his work in hybridizing corn and wheat for an arid, dry, hot climates, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Bulag worked to develop a strain of wheat that would grow in places like India, Pakistan, Africa, Turkey, Mexico, countries that will face incredible famines and droughts many times. And so because this will grow there, those particular countries will have food and thus saving 2 billion people from starvation. Now, we still have it, no doubt, but it's not to the degree that it could be. And for his work, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Um... One man, used by uh, the Lord, obviously, because he was blessed with these gifts, altered the course of human history. Now, here's the thing, though. Uh, The way that this man did this is because it was born out of a tangible expression of love from someone else whenever he was a boy. Uh, Even though he won it in 1970, the journey began in 1891 with a young man named George Washington Carver, the very first African-American student at Iowa State. Carver was brilliant, and he loved plants, and he loved flowers, and he loved art, and he was just, he was a brilliant student. 
he had an art teacher named Etta Budd that encouraged him to transfer to Iowa State. And, and she was convinced that he would do well there. And so she encouraged him to transfer, transfer there. And so he did. The problem was that being the first African-American student, he wasn't allowed to live in the dorms. And he wasn't allowed to sit in the cafeteria with the rest of the students. This is 1891. And so Etta Budd... Uh, who had encouraged him to transfer to Iowa State, one day uh, was stopping by the campus and she saw George Washington Carver sitting in the cafeteria kitchen all alone. And driven by her love for the Lord and her love for her friend, she wasn't going to have this. So she uh, took George Washington Carver by the hand and she walked him into the cafeteria and sat down at the table amidst all the other students with him. And she did that every day for at least a week until everybody just adjusted to him being in the cafeteria. And it became commonplace that they would see him in the cafeteria. Now, George Washington Carver, prior to that moment, had become despondent about being there and wondered whether it was even necessary for him to stay because he was so miserable there that no one was speaking to him and he was upset. Uh, But because of that one expression of love that connected him to the community of students, he decided to stay there. And in staying there, he met another professor that was named Henry Wallace. He began uh, visiting Henry Wallace's home and he started having dinner with Henry Wallace's family and sometimes he would even sleep over at Henry Wallace's house. And after many days of doing that, he would start going on these long walks. George Washington Carver would go on these long walks around the fields in Iowa State. And he would take little Henry Wallace's son with him, Henry A. Wallace. Henry C. Wallace was the dad and the professor and George Washington Carver would take his son, Henry A. Wallace, who was just six years old at the time. He would take with him, with him on these long walks and he would teach him about plants and flowers. They'd draw pictures together. They would talk about science. And he instilled in this young boy, Henry A. Wallace, a love of agriculture. Uh, and one day, that little six-year-old boy, Henry A. Wallace, would become the secretary of agriculture of the United States. And he eventually become the 33rd vice president of the United States. And out of his love for agriculture, he had a vision for hybridizing corn and wheat and so he started a lab in Mexico and he hired a young man named Norman Bulag to come run that lab and so because of George Washington Carver investing in this six-year-old boy to have a love for agriculture he becomes the secretary of agriculture vice president appoints Norman Bulag to work in this in this Mexico um, lab who develops this hybrid of, of putting corn and wheat together, thus an expression of love at the very beginning blossomed into two billion people not starving to death. This is unbelievable. So here's the deal. Most of us will never be the vice president of the United States. Most of us will never be the secretary of agriculture. And likely, none of us are going to win the Nobel Peace Prize or be that smart to do something that astounding, right? None of us will even be George Washington Carver and think of like 7,000 uses for the peanut. But every single one of us can be at a bud. Can look at someone who's on the outside that needs someone to come love them. And you don't know. You have no idea if that one expression of love that you show someone can be used by God to turn the world upside down. That's what we want. And so, let's have a love of people 
that's so overwhelming that we are willing to do whatever it takes to love them and care for them in the name of Christ so that we can share the gospel with them, so that they can come to know Christ, so they can become a person of God, so they can be a child of of God. And they can have a deep love for the gospel in their own heart and have a deep love for the word and a deep love for the mission so that they can reach more people. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us because you love us. God, I pray that as we think on this text, these people are charged with turning the world upside down because they loved you, they loved your word, they loved the gospel, they loved people, they loved your mission. And Lord, we look back now, have the benefit of looking back 2,000 years ago and seeing filled with the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ by the power of Jesus, they did turn the world upside down. We're still talking about it today. And Lord, oh, would you please use Remedy Church to do the same thing in our city. Use us, Lord, in this city to change it for Christ. God, we want to see you do amazing work in our city. God, we pray that you would put into us such a deep love for Christ, for saving us and for the word. God, that we would see the mission of Jesus go forward and that people would be saved. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.